Servant Leadership Institute podcast. We have a special episode for you today. We have gone back in our archives of past servant leadership conferences and pulled up a favorite presentation of ours. During our 2014 servant leadership conference, we had the pleasure of hearing from famous sportscaster Dick Enberg and former professional basketball player Bill Walton. These two men exchanged stories and words of wisdom relating to their views on leadership. We suggest a pen and a pad of paper for this episode. Enjoy. I'd like you to meet uh, my new friends, Dick and Bill. <laughs> and, I'm Bill, and then, <laughs> with two L's. <laughs> so this is how it's going to go. Um, to introduce them properly would take us so long because of the incredibly legendary, impressive careers both these gentlemen have had. Um, and so we want to get down to business. And we want, we want to learn from them, and we want to uh, just enjoy their perspectives on learning, on leadership, and, and on our conference theme, which is all about changing the game. And so please, one more time, give a warm servant leadership welcome to Dick Enberg and Bill Walton. I'm Dick Enberg's biggest fan. <laughs> we do connect. I, I, I don't know if I, maybe I'm going to Go have ahead, to use please, this. Um, we do connect. Back in the 1970s, I was the solo broadcaster for Channel 5 in Los Angeles when they had this in, incredible uh, idea. You know, we should televise the UCLA basketball games. And uh, we got this young uh, redhead from down San Diego where he's going to come up. We think he's going to be pretty good. And uh, in three years, your freshmen were not eligible, correct? And in three years, how many games uh, did the Bruins lose? Too many. Too many. Well, they weren't perfect, but they were very close to being perfect. And I think that... Uh, we should have been perfect, and we could have been perfect, and that's the really frustrating thing about it. Dick. And he's still driven by the fact, and he's, not, he's a very serious about not winning that third national championship. They, one in 73, 72-73, 72-73, but not in 74. North Carolina State beat them in uh, overtime in the semifinals. And he can probably tell you to almost to the minute uh, how long ago that was. It was March 23, 1974. We had a 14-point lead in the second half. We, we had a seven-point lead with 90 seconds to go in the second overtime in an era that predated the shot clock in an era that predated the three-point shot, and we broke Coach Wooden's greatest admonition to us, which he said every day. He was a man who, who was a teacher, and he lived by his four laws of learning, demonstration, imitation, correction, and oh, did he ever have to correct me, and then <laughs> repetition. And so his way of driving that message home constantly was the repetition. He also lived by the mantra that it's, as a teacher, that it's not how or what you teach, it's who the teachers are themselves. But the mantra that he kept coming back with every day was, do your best. That's good enough. That's all I ask. Your best will get the job done. But whatever it is you do, don't beat yourself, don't cheat yourself, 
Don't shortchange yourself because that's the worst kind of defeat you'll ever suffer and you'll never get over it. Now, Dick is the most, of all the people I've ever known in my life, Dick is the most like John Wooden in everything in terms of the standard of excellence, the calm, the poise. And I used to drive those two guys crazy because they would be sitting there and they'd be trying to get their job done and I'd just be out there. I mean, I was playing in the game of life and I was 17, 18, 19 years of age and oh, and these guys would say, what is this crazy man doing out there? But I... But let, let me interrupt here. It was hard to get to know Bill Walton in those days because he did not conduct any interviews with the press. So I never had a chance to really interview Bill because at the time he was battling a very difficult stuttering problem. And there's one of the many victories in his life that he's been able to overcome that. And now he's a national broadcaster. Learning how to speak is my greatest accomplishment in life and your worst nightmare. <laughs> and now that I've learned how to speak just a little bit, they make me bring a clock. <laughs> and I just hope to remember to look at it. Yeah. He used to call Coach Wooden you know, several times, if not every day of the week in the last uh, 10 years of Coach Wooden's life. So I saw uh, the coach and I said, I think this is great, the way your ball players come back and of course they love you and especially Bill Walton. I know he caused you some problems back in the 70s. That was a time of uh, revelation and revolution. And, uh, but I understand that uh, he'll, he'll talk to you three, four times a week. And Coach Wooden said, no he doesn't. And I said, he doesn't? He said, I listen to him three and four days a week. <laughs> But I think bringing Coach Wooden uh, into the conversation early is more than appropriate for, for what uh, you have been uh, studying and learning through these uh, days here in, in San Diego, the servant leadership. And in terms of that leadership with a capital L with uh, Coach Wooden. And, and that just a small little example of that. In today's world on television, where players are patting themselves on the back and pointing to the number or their name on the back and not to the uniform on the front, the whole meism, oh. if you will. Coach Wooden, one of the demands he had, if, you, if Bill Walton made a basket on his way back on defense, the first thing Bill Walton did, point to the man who passed him the ball. He wanted to make sure that you didn't do it alone, that it might have been an individual score, but it's a team victory. Coach Wooden was a kind, gentle, loving, caring, selfless, humble, giving, happy man. His happiness came in other people's success, particularly if that success was achieved in a team concept and there was acknowledgement to the help that was provided along the way and the culture that he was able to create. I was the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, my parents, who are the most unathletic people you've ever seen, but my parents, they cared about me more than they liked themselves. And then my very first coach, I'm from San Diego here. Anybody else from San Diego here? All right, no place like it on earth. I call my mom every night before I go to bed and the conversation starts like this. I started, I make the call, because she stays up much later than I do. And I say, yay mom, yay San Diego, yay California, thanks for the greatest life ever. And her response is always the same too, is, say Billy, did you ever get a job? <laughs> and when I get home tonight and I show her this, 
That's L.A. shirt. Oh, my gosh. This is fantastic. Hey, you know, we should mention that Ken Blanchard is right over here, too. Yes, Ken, just stand up and give a wave. Ken, you're speaking tomorrow, correct? Fantastic. We'll try don't, to steal. don't miss that. He's we'll try to steal all your stuff tonight. So. <laughs> You know, uh, I, I'm going to duck away from Wooden for just a minute yep. but to another basketball coach. I had a chance to be with him uh, a few months ago. And he is now, in a, well, along with Jim Beheim, the winningest coach in college basketball history. And that's Mike Krzyzewski at Duke University. Anyone from uh, back in that direction? I guess not. And he's our... Tar Heels, <laughs> North Carolina. Tar Heels, I guess, I, I guess that's not the Shevchevsky family shout out. Uh, the, uh, he's, uh, he is also the USA Olympic coach, and, and uh, we just have the Davis Cup down below. You see them uh, taking the bleachers down now. Tennis is a very individual game. It's, an indiv it's you against the other man. It's like boxing. It is one-on-one, -on -one, except when you play Davis Cup or Federation Cup for the women and now you're playing for your country. And it is stunning what happens to these many times greedy, spoiled athletes uh, who are uh, uh, full of themselves and should be and their bankers are full of their money. Uh, <laughs> what happens to them when they play for nothing and play for their country? And there's a wonderful message there for all of us if we want to serve and be a, a, a teammate. Now back to Coach Krzyzewski. He said last, uh, the time he coached, now he's going to be the third time he's coached the Olympic team. The world is catching up, Bill, huh? Absolutely. We're not the dominant force. We've got to play hard to be able to win the gold medal. And more importantly, you have to play as a team. That's right. Well, see, and so he, th that takes me right into the message. What he did before the Olympics uh, last time out, he took the entire team in their warm-up uniforms on a ferry in New York City and took them out by the Statue of Liberty. And he had the the photos, the official photos of the team taken with the Lady of Freedom behind them. And Coach Krzyzewski, much like Coach Wooden, did a lot of his homework. And he, I, I won't get this exactly correct, so I don't take it word for word, but he investigated the backgrounds, the deep backgrounds of his players. Went to Carmelo Anthony, let's say. Carmelo, your great-great-grandmother was a slave. What would have happened if she hadn't lived the life and and being able to produce herself so that now you in this country will have a chance to wear USA. And, and, and goes to uh, uh, another athlete saying, your, your great-great-grandparents came over from Europe. What if they had decided not to come? But they did, and they fought through tough times so that you would have the chance to represent your country, USA. Now he said, when we got down to the final game, the gold medal game, and you know, we were, there was no certainty that, uh, that we were going to win it. I had preached all along only two things for them, that USA, own it, own it, it's your ownership now, but only if you feel it, own it and feel it. And he said, I knew I got my message across when they played the national anthem and these multimillionaire athletes of ours had big tears going down their cheeks. Own it and feel it. The pride and... As Neil Young is feeding back through the, <laughs> the, the pride and loyalty that great leaders inspire in the team to make it all happen, to get to that level of selfless servant leadership. And I'm going to disagree with Dick a little bit on the individual nature of sports and boxing and tennis, because I am the biggest believer in the world in the team, because even though 
there's an individual performer out there, people have to work together to get him there, him or her there, or to put the event on, and that whole team concept, and, and, and how you treat all those people along the way. And one of the things that Dick and I are both involved in is the Challenged Athletes Foundation, where we buy wheelchairs and prosthetics for people that don't have arms and legs so that they can participate in the game of life themselves through sport, because sport is the best medicine. I'm always sick. I'm always sick of something or somebody. And whenever I start playing sports, whenever I start being part of the team, whenever I start listening to the music, I just feel better. And so these guys who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, blown up, think their life is over. We know better, we've been there ourselves. So we get them out there going, or the, a young child who has a serious birth defect and never had the chance that we all take for granted. Or maybe somebody who's been in a terrible accident, and that's what happened to this guy named Chris in the Challenged Athletes Foundation. He was an Olympic skier, and when he was in his 20s, in a competition, he went down big time and became paralyzed. And he was, like everybody else in that situation, he was gonna give up, and he was gonna kill himself, and that's just that whole sense of, it's over, I can't do anything else, my life is ruined. He got involved with a bunch of people who helped him get back up, and so he had a new goal in life. And without goals, without dreams, without hope and aspirations, we have nothing. So his goal, he was gonna become the first paraplegic to climb by himself to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And so he builds this special apparatus, equipment that he could move himself without the use of his legs, and he goes to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And he gets really close to the top, and the day before, now the, the climb to Kilimanjaro is not that technical, it's just a walk up a long hill. But when you're a paraplegic, I mean, it's really tough. And so he gets really close to the top, he can see it, but there had been a rock slide and he couldn't get over it with the equipment that he had. So they're all looking, trying to figure out, well, what are we gonna do next? How are we gonna handle this? And so somebody said, well, let's just pick him up and put him on the other side of the rocks. And so they did that. And he gets over there and he finishes the summit. And he gets to the top and he's, everybody's all cheering and yelling and taking pictures and photographs, waving the flag, and he's all disconsolate over on the side. He can't, he can't be happy with the accomplishment at hand. And somebody came over to him and said, Chris, what's wrong? Why aren't you celebrating with the rest of us? And he said, I wanted to do this by myself. I wanted to be the first guy to do it by myself. And the guy looked at Chris and said, Chris, you don't get it at all. Hmm. Nobody makes it to the top of the mountain by themselves. And this servant leadership concept of what you guys are doing is so incredibly powerful, but just look around. And while somebody has to be the leader, and Dick has been our leader forever, and his ability to stand out there and say, I'm gonna tell you how this is gonna be, and you shut up for a while, Walton, and let me talk. Yeah, shut up for a while, will you? <laughs> Isn't that a great story, though? My wife was on that ride and heard that same comment. She came well, home and she said, no one climbs the mountain alone. Oh, what a beautiful it's, story. It's that changed is. my life. It, it, it's, yes. Yes, hi, Kevin. How are you? Yeah. Oh, David. No, David. David. Kevin, it's fine. You're going to have to Call put a number right. on. He'll remember your name better. Just, just quickly, I want to interject a question. I think we'd love to know a game changing moment for you. What was a moment that you remember that changed the game in your life, in your career, that shifted something that allowed you to move forward in a new way? There's been a, a million of them. First of all, I'm the most injured athlete ever. I'm now Bill Walton 15.0 is how many times I've had to start over all the time. But I'm gonna go back to my very first coach, who was my best coach. His name is Rocky. He grew up here, born in San Diego, lived in National City, went to Sweetwater High School, 
And at the end of his high school years, he looked around for what he was going to do in his life, and he said, I'm going to be a fireman. What do firemen do? When things are at their worst, the firemen go right for it, and they say, I'm going to take care of this. The rest of us, we just run and we say, we're out of here, right? But, so Rocky becomes a fireman, and he has three children of his own. We all go to the same school together. My older brother Bruce and I, we're all at the same school in East San Diego, 56th and El Cajon Boulevard. And Rocky is the fireman at the local station. So 3 o'clock every day, school's out, and there's nothing to do. And so we're just bored stiff, because we're all straight-A students. My parents were librarians and educators and social workers and things like that. And so Rocky, he looks around at all these children getting out of school at 3 o'clock, and nothing to do. He says, I'll take care of this. And so Rocky, in 1956, as a volunteer, he started an athletic program at our school for every student, every grade, every level, every sport, all year round. I started playing in 1960, and I was eight years old with Rocky. Today, in 2014, 58 years after Rocky started, he's still there every day as a volunteer. Never took a penny. He's the richest guy I know. And that sense of making it fun. And that's the same sense I get with Dick. I've known Dick for 43 years now. And it's just absolutely incredible. And every time he broadcasts, he could broadcast <laughs> <laughs> he could broadcast tiddlywinks, and I would listen. <laughs> I was there with Dick because he makes it fun. He makes it interesting. I always learn something. He's got the facts. It was Dick who told Dick Krzyzewski, I mean, Mike Krzyzewski, all those background stories. <laughs> he fed him the information. But I was there the day that Dick got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and Dick had invited Pat Hayden the incredible athlete, scholar athlete, road scholar, businessman, now the current athletic director at USC, just absolutely spectacular human being. Dick had asked Pat to make the introduction there and, uh, and be the master of ceremonies. And Pat said something special that has stayed with me ever since. He said, a moment spent with Dick Enberg is a moment of illumination, advocation, education, and entertainment. And all those things constantly come into play. And that sense of perfection, the sense of this guy who has given up his whole life. He's got a great wife, cute as can be, a magnificent home over there in La Jolla. He could be there all the time, yet he's always out trying to make this world a better place. And we can never thank the selfless sacrifice. And that was my coach. That was Rocky, who just made it so much fun. We couldn't wait to get to practice. The same way that I know when Dick's going to call a game, when he's going to be at an event, when he's going to be the speaker, I said, i got to be there, because I'm going to be a better person when I walk out of there. Thank you, Dick Enberg. We well, love you. Thank you. Wow, that's it. Would you put that in writing? <laughs> you know, speaking, speaking of writing, did, it, did, it, did, anybody hear, did anybody hear Dick's intro at the Jerry Coleman ceremony down here that was held just two weeks ago? Did anybody else here for that? There's a hand in the back. No, it was everyone, though. Uh, Bill, everyone has no, such beautiful things to say about him. But your intro set it up. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, that's all right. the, uh, <laughs> let me tell you a story about Bill, and I think his passion for life uh, and what he does come through, and I think that's true of us. We're, we still live the dream. I just had my 79th birthday, and I'm still living the dream. I mean, it's uh, and so don't, don't get you know, don't don't let go of that. And and I think it's appropriate. We I often will sign a, one of my books to a, a young 17, 18 year old who wants to go on and become a sportscaster, and that I'll say, don't give up the dream. Well, that's not just for teenagers. That's for all of us. Don't give up your dream. 
You know, you don't, no one should ever take that away from you. Keep that dream and make it, make it live. Now, I'll tell you a quick story about Bill. This is getting to be too much of a mutual admiration <laughs> society, but uh, we, we were doing a, a, a regional championship in the NCAA basketball tournament. Was that in San Antonio? San Antonio. San Antonio. Arizona was playing? Illinois. Illinois. And on the Arizona team was a guy named Walton, uh, Luke Walton, his son. And, and Bill's all over him. Every time the kid made a mistake, that Walton kid, he better learn how to play defense. Oh, another foul on one. I finally had to say on the air, hey, come on, give him a break, Bill, let's go. Well, at the end of the game, Arizona beats Illinois. And I look over at my partner here, and he's got these big crocodile tears coming right down his cheeks. And, and his answer to why he felt that way was, I'm the luckiest and proudest dad in the whole world. <laughs> and we got on the plane an hour later, he was still crying. <laughs> he was still crying. And it was interesting because this game was fierce as can be. And Dick, Dick has called all the biggest. How many Super Bowls, Dick? Eight. Not at not all, but yeah. he, he's got all the records. He's been there for every big event. <laughs> and this is one of my first big events. And so I, I'm calling this game, and we're just, it's just an incredible moment. Either team could win back and forth, and at the very end, at the very end of the game, Arizona, Luke had come into the game and made some nice plays at the end, and Arizona wins the game. And they're celebrating, they're running up and down the court. Dick and I are already off the air. We're back just standing there beaming, elbowing each other. And, and they're cutting down the nets. We're going to the final four. They're mussing up Lou Olson's hair, which is not an easy task. And Dick and I are saying, look how happy they are. They're never going to be that happy again the rest of their lives. <laughs> and let's not be the ones to tell them. <laughs> and so Luke, he's with his team on the court, and he sees Dick and I. And so he, he comes away from the team and comes over to us, and he puts out his hand to Dick. And you know, Dick's just no, a, he hugged his dad, he, you know that. He's yeah. the greatest family friend you could ever have, Dick Emberg. And so Dick is pumping Luke's hand, and, and, and he said, come on, Luke, the championship, the final four, the legacy is all right there. And then Luke turns to me, the dad. The dad, like so many people in this room, who we just haven't been able to be there enough because of all the dreams that we're chasing. And so Luke turns to me, and he's a, he's, like, he's a lot like me. He's very quiet, very shy, and very reserved. <laughs> and so he puts his hand out to me, and Dick's standing right there, and he puts his hand out to me, he looks up at me, and he says, Dad, thanks for coming, Dad. Thanks for coming. And I just pulled him in, and I said, Luke, I'm the proudest and luckiest dad in the world. And I just broke down and started crying. <laughs> and I've been crying ever since. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, on a humorous note, to this, but when I first started, I left the <laughs> college. I was a college professor and assistant baseball coach at what is now Cal State Northridge. It was a young San Fernando Valley State College when they recruited me with my doctorate from Indiana. And uh, now Gene Autry Station. Uh, has uh, hired me, and uh, the baseball announce team was already set, but Blattner and Don Wells were their announcers, but I, I became their pre- and post-game uh, host, a half-hour pre-game, half-hour post-game. I had no assistant. I had to put together the tapes. I had to get all the scores up on the scoreboard. I had to go to the edit room and say, let's use these double plays, and how about the home run that decided the game, all of that. Well, this one day, we, I asked them, the one thing I want you to do is build a scoreboard that is so big that every game can be placed on there and we'll have magnetic names of all the teams 
and magnetic numbers so that I can put up Chicago White Sox, four, Kansas City, three, and so I'm doing that as well. Well, this one day, wouldn't you know it, it's gonna happen. A lot of scores came in at the same time. So he's saying 30 seconds there, time and Bergen. And I said, what was the score again of the Tiger game? Detroit, Detroit, now I'm fumbling everything, dropping the seven, and who'd they play? They played the Yankees, the Yankees, so 10 seconds, and I, and I finally, with three seconds go, I sit down, I said, hello everyone, and welcome to <laughs> Angels post-game show, and the, what a game it was, the Angels pull it out, and we've got that uh, home run, and a couple of inside looks at a double play, da, 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 and, and at the time, we had no uh, earpieces so that the director or producer couldn't, we didn't have a producer, just a director. Uh, you couldn't hear anything from the truck. And it was only a cameraman, and, and uh, I could just feel, you know, that something wasn't quite right. And he, he'd, he'd now and then duck out from behind the camera and take a look at me, and he's pointing, and I don't know what he's trying to say. And I'm just going on, I'm not going to stop me. I'm, and uh, finally I realized what the problem was. I was sitting on my lavalier microphone. <laughs> so it was kind of life-changing in that the mail that I received after that telecast, you never sounded better. <laughs> so no matter what you may read in the broadcasting history books, I invented the rectal micro microphone. <laughs> and if you want... If you want to read an incredible book, Dick has been kind enough to bring some of his books today for the group here. And they're going to be for sale somewhere in the right room. Right behind us here. Right, right behind us here when they're done. Dick will personally autograph them. The book is called Oh My. And it's absolutely an incredible read. And it's just spectacular in every front. Because Dick not only has won many awards for his speaking and his persona and his ability to call the big game, but his writing and the ability to tell the story, the big picture stories that you don't really get to the opportunity for. And so when you read this book, <clears throat> you are gonna be blown away by not only the stories of his life with the broadcasters and how it, the dream came true, but also this remarkable story of a young man from Michigan and his relationship with his dad. And that relationship was so special and the way it's captured and woven through the entire book and then brings it right down to it. And I love my dad. I had the greatest dad in the world who passed away 11 years ago. And on the day he died, I had already had a bunch of scheduled things with Dick. And so I'm at the hospital saying goodbye to my dad as he's taking his last breath over there in Mission Valley. And then I go down and I say goodbye to my dad and he's gone. And then I go to the luncheon event where Dick is going to be on the speaking tour with his book. And everywhere he went, in every city, he had a different local friend from sports, from broadcasting, from business, whatever, to come and be the moderator. Like, David is supposed to be up here. <laughs> he said, you're overpaid, David. You <laughs> have no idea. And so Dick, Dick asked me to be the moderator here in San Diego. Right? And my dad had just died half an hour before. Right? And I don't tell Dick any of this because he's got a ton of things on mind. He has to give up and give a speech. And so I'm leading Dick through the whole book process and the selling and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, Dick looks at the clock and he says, okay, show's over. We're done. We're out of here. And there's, you know, like this, a huge crowd in the, in, in the hall. And I'm sitting there and I'm stunned because Dick didn't tell the story of his dad. And with my dad just going down and 
I, so I said, wait a second, you can't quit now. You've got to tell the story of your dad. And then I went and sat back down in my chair and just started crying like crazy. And Dick is trying to tell the story. He keeps, what's wrong with you over there? <laughs> I'm, the cry, I'm the one that cries at a red hat. The, uh, that, but there's a message in, in what we are talking about ourselves. And hope you uh, forgive us for that. Uh, it's, it's nice to be self-indulgent. But, no, 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 it's uh, but I, I, I grew up on a farm in Michigan. We had no indoor plumbing. And I went to a one-room school through the eighth grade. And I borrowed a sport coat to have my senior picture taken. And I hitchhiked to Central Michigan because they gave me a $100 academic scholarship. And, 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 and it's part of this whole dream. And as you lead people in your life, just remember, yeah, it always abuses me. Someone said, where'd you grow up, New York City? And you know, come on. Uh, we had to rub the snow off the two-holer in the middle of the winter. If you want to learn humility, that's a good place to start. I don't know why, I don't know why we had two holes. We didn't go on both hands. I mean, so when I go back to, to uh, my education, my high school education, 33 in my graduating class, my college central Michigan, my graduate school in Indiana, my, my first message is, you know, thank you for allowing a nobody to become a somebody. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we all have that chance when we're working with people too. You know, there are a lot of somebodies you can make even better, better somebodies. And I guess that's what your program is all about. But so much of that is the culture. The culture of what you live in, what you choose, what you build, and the whole sense of the culture that I grew up in, which was full of people who looked at the world as something that could be improved and that they, as individuals, were gonna do something about that. My parents, my dad was a social worker, an adult educator, and a music teacher. My mom was our town's librarian. Rocky, our fireman, my very first coach. Chick Hearn, the guy that brought me into sports. And Chick, his passion, his love, his enthusiasm, his intensity, and his it just incredible sense of humor. I mean, Chick made bowling for dollars <laughs> appointment viewing. And then John Wooden and that whole sense of making the world a better place. And then the cultural heroes that I had in politics and in social issues, guys like Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and Sergeant Shriver. And then in the sporting worlds, my heroes were Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali, guys who just use sport as David Stern has done recently to make the world a better place. And so as you're trying to find that opportunity to make a difference and to change that person's life who is going to just have maybe a totally brief encounter with you or maybe a lifelong relationship with you, that sense that of what Nelson Mandela told us, that people will never remember what you say. They'll never remember what you do, but they will always remember how you treat them. And that sense of kindness, the sense of love, the sense of openness, the sense of inclusion, of being part of a team. I've been on the statue ceremony tour recently in the last 18 months. I was at Kareem's statue unveiling at Staples Center. I was at Bill Russell's statue in Boston. I was at Larry Bird's statue in Indiana. And they were all totally different events. And the one in Boston with Bill Russell was very, very serious. And he talked about progress. Now, Bill Russell's my favorite player ever on and off the court and what he did. And what he did to change sport, maybe not as powerful as Muhammad Ali, who, who had a bigger stage than just basketball. But Bill Russell, he told the story in closing of his statue ceremony dedication, that he said, people don't realize how far we've come. 
and how hard people have worked and sacrificed to get to where we are. And Bill Russell speaking, he says, my grandfather was never allowed to go to school because of the color of his skin. My father got to sixth grade before they said, that's it, no more school, cotton fields. I, Bill Russell, I was able to graduate from University of San Francisco, and my daughter is a graduate of Harvard Law School. And so that whole sense of that beaming pride of a dad and how it, it, it is working, it is coming together, but it will not happen if we just sit there. And that's why I always turn Dick Enberg on the television, because I know I'm gonna get a new direction and new inspiration. Why do I need an agent, huh? What do I need that for? I'll, I'll just, uh, Piggyback on the comment about Bill Russell, I was with him at a, a nice event, and uh, you know, tall man, and in the lobby, and people wondering who he is, and someone came up to him and said, you know, we're just over here discussing, who are you anyway? <laughs> and he said, I'm my father's son. I'm my father's son. You're in a baseball ballpark, let me give you a, a, a little baseball a common occurrence that applies to the spirit of this uh, conference. It's one of my, my favorite comments is, I'll pick him up for you. Now, that's the situation. It's the ninth inning. Your team uh, has a man on third, tie game, one out. All you have to do is go up there and hit a ground ball somewhere or a fly ball and get the runner home and the team wins, right? You go up and strike out. And as you're walking back to the dugout, now there's two outs. Your teammate, as you pass, says, I'll pick him up for you. I'll pick him up for you. He gets a base hit, guess what? Everyone forgets you struck out. They remember who got the winning base hit. So you can strike out if your teammates are there delivering and, and, and have a winning effort. And, and, and that's sense. We're gonna let, David's getting frustrated. He no, said, no, 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 only just if there's questions. I just, oh, I, yeah, I need questions. to follow up on that because the culture that I grew up in, the culture that I grew up in was of win the game. It makes no difference how you play if the team wins the game. Now, ultimately, you have to play well to win. But when you win, everybody plays great. And when you lose, everybody stinks it up. So let's focus in on winning the game. And that's why I love this Super Bowl so much. Because even though there was so much hype and so much individual attention of look at me, look at me, when the game started, I saw very little of that in the excellent performance by that Seattle Seahawks team. Excellent in every aspect, flawless football. And then at the end of the third quarter, they put Bob Dylan up there and they said, let's go. There's nothing more America than American cars. Let's go. How cool was that? If you do have questions, you can interrupt us at any time. Just think Good luck. It. Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. And it may be a fight. I dare you. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, Dwayne Lucas uh, may be a name that uh, a lot of you don't know, but those of you who love the thoroughbred animal and horse racing would know that he's one of the most outstanding trainers, leaders in the sport of thoroughbred racing. He has stables all around the country at all the major tracks, and Dwayne Lucas has won the Kentucky Derby and the Breeders' Cup and all the, all the big races. And on every one of his barns, he has a poster listing what he calls the 12 tenets in caring for the thoroughbred horse. And number seven on that list is the power of kindness for a thoroughbred animal. Now, it's a beautiful athlete, the equine athlete. God didn't create the brightest animal when he made the thoroughbred <laughs> horse, but it is beautiful. And if it works for a horse, the power, the power of kindness, 
Sure should work for us, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? And I, and I tell young people the way you can exercise that power of kindness every day is to use two words. It doesn't cost you a cent, doesn't cost you anything, and it'll work your entire lifetime. It empowers you and makes the other person feel good. Thank you. I tell my children, don't mumble thank you. Look them in the eye and say, thank you, thank you. And has anyone here ever gotten a thank you note and said, some dummy sent me a thank you note? <laughs> why, why would anyone want to do that? You even get more power when you write it. So I the power of kindness can work for that horse you bet $2 on, but it can work just as well for the person you're rubbing shoulders with at the workplace. On that note, in one of Coach Wooden's many books, he speaks of the horse, <laughs> he speaks of the farm, and one day Coach was out in the field, working the, the field with the plow and the horse, and the horse wasn't doing the job. And so Coach was dragging it and yelling at it and pushing it and shoving it, and, and the horse was just standing there and not responding at all. And so Coach Wooden's dad, Joshua, is on the other end of the field watching this whole thing while the horse is totally unresponsive to Coach Wooden as a young man trying to drag it and push it and intimidate it or bully it on its way to getting the job done. And the dad, after witnessing this, he walks across the field and says, Johnny, this is how this is done. And he went over and he put his hand on the neck and the head of the horse and whispered in his ear and said, just said, come along, you'll be fine. And the horse just fell right in and started doing the job. And there is nothing more powerful than kindness and that sense of making a difference in someone's life. And we all at times feel powerless. We all feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the situation. But if you can just look around and you think of the, think of the different elements that go into leadership, which, is, which are pull the team together, define the terms of the conflict, make them play your game, do what others can't and won't do, lead the relentless offensive attack and hit first. And then finally, use the word no liberally because it's easy to say yes. Oh, just go ahead and do it, just go ahead and do it. But knowing when to say no, and that will be Adam Silver, his greatest charge as he takes over from David Stern in running the NBA, this incredible economic empire that David Stern has built and created vast wealth for so many different people. And now this young, untested guy is gonna come in there and everybody's gonna be fighting and pushing for their own turf. And as the leader, Adam Silver is gonna to have to say no at the appropriate time. And I had to do that myself with our children. Because they would always say, we have four children and they're now 38, 36, 34, and 32. And as they were growing up, they would always say, Dad, we hate you, Dad. You're the worst dad ever, Dad. All you do, Dad, is say no. Dad, we hate you so much. You're the worst dad ever, Dad. We're going to go to Notre Dame. And, <laughs> and I would look at them and I would say, I would love to say yes. But you guys are asking the wrong questions. And if you ask me if you can go to bed now, I'd be more than happy to say yes. <laughs> okay. Dad, can I do the dishes? Yes. Dad, can I turn off the TV? Yes. Dad, can I do the yard work? Yes. <laughs> but the worst things you can do for the ones you love are the things they could and should do for themselves. 
Al McGuire was a broadcast partner, a great basketball coach, the most, un while John Wooden is the greatest man other than my own father that I've ever met, Al McGuire was the most incredible <laughs> character that I've ever met. And to follow up on Bill's point, uh, we were at a, a, doing a game at Purdue and we were at the hotel uh, desk and we were checking in and the young lady there was giving <coughs> McGuire, Coach McGuire, his keys, which were on the, in a suite up on the seventh or eighth floor. And Coach says, I don't want to be on the seventh or eighth floor. I don't want that room. And she said, but it's our best room here. We, our manager said, we wanted to take good care of you. And he said, no, I want to be either on the first or the second floor. And it wasn't because if a uh, fire hit, he could jump out. Al was a rascal, and he might be other reasons why he's trying to escape a room. So he always, always wanted to be on the first or the second floor. And she said, but and she argued with him, no, no, I'll call the manager. We'll try to take care of We want you to have a good time here. And he, and he finally said to her, young lady, it's okay to say no. Yes is the answer, the best answer I, I can get. But no is a good answer. Maybe is the bad answer, yeah. and we do it all the time to our kids, our colleagues, our neighbors. We'll see. Wait till your dad comes home. Uh, I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. No is really a great answer. It's good for us and for the person on the other end. They, they don't have to wait a week of maybes before they get no anyway. <laughs> so no, he said, yes, no. He called me Dixie. Dixie, no, is a good answer. One other thing from Al McGuire, a piece of wisdom. He said, Dixie. You go to a school and you want to know what's happening in that school. You want to know really the inner workings of the school, where would you go? And I'd say, well, probably you would go to the top superintendent. <laughs> Absolutely wrong. You're in the wrong direction. If you want to know what's going on in the school, you go to the custodian. And you go, he said, the ladder of business or school or whatever, the rungs on the ladder, everyone on their rung knows what's happening on the rung above them because they want to get to that rung. And you finally get to the top and there's no rung above you and if you're a good leader, then you go back down to the bottom, you start talking to the custodian and the people down there so you're making contact throughout your organization. So he said, whenever you want to see what's going on, don't look up, look down. Yeah. They're the ones who may know more about the business going on in your environment than anyone else. But think of the responsibility of a leader, <coughs> excuse me, the responsibility to breathe life into the situation. What Dick does, what Coach Wooden did, what J Phil Jackson does, all these people who come into a situation and they make it better. The job of a coach, the job of a parent, the job of a teacher are the most important jobs because they're the ones who are responsible for what's next. And so, I'm calling my very first big game, and it's with Dick, and he's called a billion big games. And so as we're out there getting ready to go, I am nervous as can be. I have no idea what I'm doing there or what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say. I'm chewing my gum. I'm going over everything in my mind, memorizing all my lines, writing them down, sweating profusely. We're out here on the stage with the lights on and the camera, and the producer starts counting us down. 10, 9, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to start stuttering, I'm going to start spitting all over everything. English is my fifth language, after stammering, stuttering, spitting, and stumbling. And so, 
The, Dick, is, Dick is sitting on his stool. He's having the time of his life, right? He's waving to all the pretty ladies. He's signing some autographs. He's having a, 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 a sip of water. He knows that red light's going to come on in now five, four. He's going to start talking about life and basketball for two and a half hours. It's going to be fantastic. And Dick looks over at me, and I'm just looking terrible. He says, Walton, you look terrible. What's wrong with you? I said, I'm so scared. I can't do this. What am I doing here? This is ridiculous. And now the producer's at three, two, and Dick pats me on the leg. He says, Billy, don't worry about a thing. That red light's coming on. In one more second, there's going to be 35 million people hanging on every word you say. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dick. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, and he did something that, uh, that I thought really was interesting. I think he put it in the book, in fact. And that is that because of the problem in the past with the stuttering, that Bill learned to go into his hotel room bathroom in front of the mirror and practice his opening lines for the telecast looking at himself so that he was able to see himself deliver the message. And it really was a great, a great clue for others. This comes from a friend of yours and a friend of all of ours. The person who taught me how to speak uh, is, is named Marty Glickman. Now, Marty's no longer with us. But Marty he was an announcer in New York, uh, basketball, football, right. all sports. Marty was the Dick Enberg and the Chick Hearn of New York and in the 40s and the 50s. But Marty had grown up in Brooklyn, and he's got a fantastic book out called The Fastest Kid on the Block of his life story. And he's got an incredible HBO documentary just called The Marty Glickman Story. And so Marty goes up to Syracuse where he's a college athlete, student athlete, and he's on top of the world, and he qualifies for the US Olympic team in 1936. So he goes over there to Berlin, and on the eve of the Olympics, Adolf Hitler and Avery Brundage, then the head of the US Olympic Committee, they get together and Hitler says, hey look, Avery, it's bad enough that you brought all these black guys over here to Germany and gonna win all the medals, but you brought all these Jewish guys too and we just can't have that. So I'm asking you right now, don't let the Jewish guys run. And so Avery Brundage says, okay, he makes the deal with Hitler and Marty, who's whole life, his whole dream was enveloped in this one moment, the Olympics, and he doesn't even get to participate. So Marty comes home, and he's crushed, and he's broken, and he thinks it's over, and there's no future for him. But Marty regroups, stands up, and says, I'm going to do something about this. And he spent the rest of his life, like Dick Enberg, making the world a better place. And so then Marty, I meet Marty when I'm 28, he teaches me how to speak, now Marty's dead, and they're scouring the earth trying to find the person to get me to stop speaking up here. So. <laughs> well, I know you've uh, heard the message of serving and trusting and connecting. And trusting, of course, uh, requires that the person uh, that wants to be trusted or you want to be trusted is honest with them. And, and I think one of the lessons you'll learn as an athlete, you've got to be honest with yourself and honest with your teammates. You're not perfect. When you make a mistake, hey, you know, and that's how you earn that respect from, from your colleagues. Um, and, and one of the wonderful lessons that I learned as a college professor, I taught the freshman class when I, I, my first years at Cal State in health education. We had 50 kids in a classroom. And I knew with the, the variety of subjects, everything from you know, disease to human reproduction to psychology, that in every subject area, there's always going to be someone in the classroom smarter than I am. And I used to play a game with myself. I would say, I don't know, to one question. And I might say, I don't know again. If I said, I don't know three times in a classroom, it was like a three strikes and you're out. I really failed that day. 
Uh, I was more nervous teaching that class than I've ever been before a Super Bowl game. I mean, it just, when you're meeting your audience and bright kids are raising their hand and may I put in a little plug for education, there is no continuing exercise that's more exciting for anyone than the challenge of the raised hand. Mm. To be in a classroom and to see your brightest student slowly raise that hand. <laughs> that is an, ex I'm, I'm gonna experience that again. I'm gonna go back and teach uh, before all of this uh, comes uh, to an end. So to be honest with them, and I, I didn't say, oh, I'm gonna punish you for asking a question I couldn't answer. I'll get that answer, I'll have that answer for you tomorrow. To be honest with, with your, this, in this case, the audience, and it paid off later when I'm speaking before millions of people, to be honest with them. Um, it's, uh, do we have time for, it's a, it, I'll try to shorten this up. You're doing a UCLA game in 1970. It's before Walton comes on the scene. And UCLA has just won, at that time, let's see, they would have won 66, Five or seven, six. eight, nine. Yeah, they've, you know, they've won six, maybe in a row, four in a row. They won 64, 65, 67, 68, 69, 70. So they're about to win their fourth. They won six out of the last eight. Um, anyway, it's uh, uh, the start of the conference season. UCLA's unbeaten, and they play a very weak Oregon team. And it's a rainy night in Los Angeles. I didn't have a color man then. I did nine years of UCLA basketball, always flying solo. They won eight national championships. I was a pretty good announcer. Uh, <laughs> as soon as you left, the team <laughs> fell apart. Yeah, right, it was all me. It wouldn't happen to leave at the same time. Uh, any, anyway, so it's a rainy night, and Oregon has no chance. I mean, it's a team that has no chance. And so it's about the middle of the first half, and at that time, once you crossed the midcourt line, you didn't have to initiate any play. There was no clock. You could do anything you want. You could stall as long as you wanted. Well, in this game, I can't even remember, the Oregon guard or whether it's the UCLA guard came across midcourt, and I think it was because Oregon had hit a couple of long shots. They were in a zone defense, and Wooden said, hey, you cross the center court line and just put the ball on your hip, and we'll make them come out of that zone defense. So here I am with no one to play off uh, as a partner, and uh, the guard is just standing at midcourt with a ball in his hip and nothing's <laughs> happening. And the other players are all down under the basket, and here I'm trying to make something out of this. So I look up, and it's 11, 11 minutes left in the first half, folks, and as you can see, now I'm going back to being honest with my students, you can see nothing's happening. And by the way, look at all those uh, banners up there, UCLA National <laughs> Championships, and they get shots of those, and we talk about that kill a minute, 10 minutes to and eight, let's look ahead to the uh, schedule coming up. UCLA's gonna go to Cal and Stanford and then they come home, Washington, Washington State, nine minutes left and still nothing's happening. I'm standing there. The, so I said, you'll have to forgive me. Nothing is happening in the game. My mind is wandering off on this rainy night. There's this song they keep playing on the radio from Butch, Cass Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, raindrops keep falling on your head. And there's a pause, and I start, da, 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 da. <laughs> My wife said, oh, you didn't do that. <laughs> so the next night, they play a really good team, Oregon State, and barely win a basket right at the buzzer. And in my nine years at, uh, doing UCLA games, in nine years, they lost only twice at home. So they almost lost that night. But before the game, our, our broadcast location was up on the second level with a student body below. 
And there must have been 10, 12 kids that came up before the game. See, what we did, we'd call the home games and replay them at 11 o'clock at night. So they'd watch the game, then they'd go home and, and, and watch it again on television. So they came up and they've got the lyrics to raindrops keep falling <laughs> on my head. And so I look at those and the game goes on and Oregon State almost wins. And in my closing, I said, well, you music lovers who heard me home raindrops last night, uh, many of the students have brought by the lyrics and looking at the lyrics must remind uh, the opponents of UCLA of how it feels to play the Bruins. Raindrops keep falling on your head, and just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed, those raindrops keep falling. And I said, it's like the de defeats for the opposition, the UCLA, the, the losses just keep falling. And by the way, if and when UCLA wins the conference championship, I'll sing those lyrics down at midcourt. Now, tape delay, we're 1.30 in the morning now. It was innocent enough. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Well, it became a cause celeb. The, the, the pep band got a rendition of raindrops keep falling on your head. And so when UCLA, as they often would, would get a 20, 25 point lead in the second half, uh, there'd be a timeout, the band would strike up raindrops, the kids would turn and say, you'll sing, you'll sing, you'll sing. So at the end of the season, sure enough, you know how you watch the newscast and when it's, uh, it's all good night everyone, uh, thank you for watching the news, and then they shuffle papers around and they're doing little business just until the camera's off them and they sprint out of the studio. So I'm shuffling the papers and all, and 12,000 people stayed at Poly Pavilion to hear my debut in public <laughs> as a uh, vocalist. Well, I never, I think I could sing pretty well in the, in the shower. I just never got on any kind of a key. But a beautiful thing happened that night. As I started to sing, it was another rainy night by coincidence, and I'm looking into the student body, and the kids opened up their umbrellas. And it was just like, wow, we just connected. It was all you know, spontaneous, it was not contrived at all. It's kind of like, hey, we've had a good time with this. Well, a final note, about three uh, weeks later, I get a letter from UCLA, UCLA Stationery, and it's from the Department of Music. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and this professor says, uh, dear uh, Dr. Enberg, I know that you have your doctorate as well, and I know you lo your love for academics, and I love college basketball, and I love the Bruins, and I've followed your, your career and enjoy your broadcast, and I happened to be uh, listening the other night uh, to your singing of Raindrops Keep Falling on Your Head. And, for academic pursuit, if, you, if you're ever on the campus here in Westwood, uh, here's my office number. I have studied musicology for 35 years. I'd like you to come in and explain two notes I've never heard in my entire life. <laughs> so, you know, here, out of being honest with a situation, a rough situation, yeah, yeah, I could have just frozen there and not done anything, but stupid me, I decided to hum a song, and it became, it became a wonderful moment. Yes. And so, trust yourself, be honest, and people uh, will ride along with you. And a great story of the team coming together and the interaction between <coughs> the voice, the most important person, because the voice of the, of the game is the one that makes you believe that this is bigger than it really is, and that we're better than we could ever possibly be. And I was intrigued by Dick's story of the, the raising of the hand. 
because I used to do that with Coach Wooden all the time and <laughs> absolutely drive him crazy. And he would try to ignore me as much as he could. But finally, I just blurted out because I wanted to know why about everything. You know, why are we in Vietnam? Why do I have to cut my hair? Why do I have to shave? Why do I have to wear the clothes that you want me to? Why can't the cheerleaders be in my hotel room on the road trips? And, <laughs> and, he would just sit there and listen and just roll his eyes and, and finally just say, Bill, that's really nice that you feel that way, but you know what? I'm the coach here. And while we've enjoyed having you, we're going to miss you. And when he said that, I knew it was time to get back in line and get going again. And they asked him when he was 96, they said, Coach, were you really going to kick Walton off the team because he wasn't going to cut his hair or shave? And without hesitation, Coach Wooden looked at the reporter and said, the only thing that matters is that Bill thought I was going to do it. <laughs> and I did. And there was nothing more important than being on a team. Nothing more important than being a part of something special. Like what you guys have here with the Leadership Institute. And this conference here is that how to make the difference how to change one person's life, and all the different things that go into that, and the sacrifice, and the vision, and the passion, the compassion, all the things that, that make you the individual champion in someone's life. Coach Wooden would tell us every day, you cannot lead a perfect day in your life without doing something for somebody who will never be able to pay you back. And he said, and, the, and, and I love this line too, Bill, Make each day your masterpiece. And we all can do that. It's tough, but we have that chance. Hey, hey, we, we got a choice around here. I don't have a bucket list. I just I'm just getting started. I'm I'm 61 years old, I've had 37 orthopedic operations. I've got both my ankles fused, my spine is fused, I've got a brand new knee, my hands and wrists don't work. Other than that, everything is fantastic. <laughs> and I'm truly the luckiest guy in the world. People have always been nicer to me than I deserve. And I, I'm busier than ever. I'm happier than ever, and I haven't been this healthy since high school. And so I'm just charging down the road, getting going, and I've got a fantastic wife that I'm madly in love with, and we have four great children and three grandchildren and two more grandchildren on the way. So things are fantastic. I live, I live in my hometown, and I live in the same house for the last 35 years. My mom is still alive. She lives in this house we all grew up in for 61 years. So we're just the luckiest people on earth. And, And I love to ride my bike. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you ought to see him. He, he did that ride from uh, San Francisco to San Diego, 600 miles in six days. I got lost. It was 750. <laughs> <laughs> but he was tough to find, you can imagine. <laughs> but the thing about my bike, I love my bike because my bike represents everything that I believe in science, technology, discipline, the team, commitment, focus, physical fitness, all the different things. But what it really means to me, because my bike is my, my gym, my wheelchair, and my church all in one. And with my bike, 
it's like what this institute is about. It's what Ken Blanchard's life is about. It's what Dick Enberg's life is about. It's what Art, our leader, who couldn't be with us today because he's not feeling well. It's go in places that you can't get to by yourself. I can't walk, I can't stand, but I can ride my bike. And when I'm out there riding my bike, and I love to ride my bike all day, every day, to be able to get up and start riding my bike and come back when it's dark and put in 100, 110, 120, 140 miles on my bike and to be able to come back and say, yeah, I was able to do something. That sense of self-esteem, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of being part of something that I can't do by myself. And I, I love to be right in the middle of the fight. And I, just, I live for that and I don't get that physically anymore except when I'm on my bike. And, I love my bike so much. I'm, I'm just the luckiest guy in the and world. And you're getting this from a man who is in the debate, if you want to talk about the greatest basketball player in the history of the game, greatest big man in the history of the game. Here's this three-time All-America, Bill Walton. Yeah. You, you know, I think we, we haven't spoken about something that's dear and true to both of us, which is the Academic All-America Hall of Fame. And Dick is the, the voice and the face of the Academic All-America Hall of Fame. It's an it's a incredibly fantastic program that honors student athletes from their college days who went on to do something unusual or different later on down the road. And there's less than 100 of us that are in the whole program, and Dick is the, the leading driving force there. And it honors the combination of athletics, and education, and that powerful force of those two mm -hmm. things in our life that just come together and allow us to build something. Who would have ever thought that little Billy from La Mesa, with his red hair and his freckles and his big nose and his goofy, nerdy-looking face and his horrendous speech impediment would be sitting next to Dick Enberg here at Petco yeah. Park. Oh my gosh, <laughs> who would have ever thought? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight, Bill. <laughs> I'm going to be wrapped up in my own arms. <laughs> That's a beauty. Barbara's arms are very nice. Well, you, know, you ladies must have a question. You know, it's always, you know, come on. There's them in the back at the All bar. Right. Yes, the bar. <laughs> I was John Wooden's easiest recruit, I was his worst nightmare, and I drove him to an early grave at 99. <laughs> I grew up, every coach I ever had was a John Wooden disciple. Rocky, all my high school coaches, every little, little league program, all about John Wooden and the pyramid of success and the seven point creed and the two sets of threes and the endless maxims and all those things. And I thought it was the dumbest stuff in the world. I thought it was just so sad. What is this? But we were winning every, to every game. I mean, we, we, we set the records that still stand to this day, 43 years after we started. And it wasn't until I left Coach Wooden that I realized how important all the things that he was talking about. It wasn't until I started to get hurt. It wasn't until I started to fail and fumble and stumble and fall on that ground. And, and how easy it is to memorize the pyramid 
industriousness, enthusiasm, friendship, loyalty, cooperation, intentness, initiative, alertness, self-control, physical fitness, skill development, commitment to the team, poise, confidence, competitive, greatness, flanked by faith and patience, the seven-point creed, make each day your masterpiece. Drink deeply from all sources of knowledge. Make friendship a fine art. Prepare for the tough times ahead. And three, I can't remember. And then the endless maxims. Be quick, but don't hurry. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Happiness begins when selfishness ends. Never mistake activity for achievement. The worst things you could do for the ones you love are the things they could and should do for themselves. And the one he kept coming back to all the time was, it's not a game of size and strength. It's a game of skill, timing, and position. It's not how big you are, it's how big you play, it's not how high you jump, it's where you are and when you jump. Tay Yao was an outstanding basketball coach at North Carolina State. She was the coach of the women's Olympic team in 1988 in Seoul, Korea. Uh, they would win the gold medal, but as part of the whole process, when you're named an Olympic coach, you have to go through a thorough medical examination, and they found that she had breast cancer. So she had the operation and she was able to live through that uh, another 15, 18 years. And her comment at the time, and I, the reason I bring this up is as a broadcaster of the Olympic finals, the women's finals, I had this quote uh, sitting right there for me. I wish, you know, sometimes you'd like to go back like you, we'd like to go back and make one more shot, that one more play. <laughs> I'd like to go back to that Olympics and call that uh, championship final again, the final minutes. Because in the Olympics, the coaches don't get gold medals. Now you leaders, sometimes you don't get the gold medals. Your gold medal is that the people working around you are able to uh, enjoy the gold. Anyway, uh, her comment was at the time of the cancer uh, diagnosis, when life gives you a kick, make sure it kicks you forward. And here I was, I had that note, and we had this beautiful shot, the 12 Olympians, Americans, dancing and hugging and crying and fondling their gold medals. And, and, then, and then they panned down the length of the court, and there was the coach, Kay Yao, on one knee, looking like a mother admiringly at her, her, her children. And, and I was right there, I could have said, when life gives you a kick, make sure it kicks you forward. And there's a nice message there for all of us. It isn't always easy. You've all had your problems. Uh, just think about that. That it's not the life means those people around you that help you to be kicked, kicked forward. And that's uh, Bill related to that very well. It's like you, no? it's like the mantra that says, "I don't care which way I'm going, as long as it is forward." And that sense of how we're going to make this work. And so. Did you want us to wrap yeah, this up? Yeah, if we talk any longer, you're not getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got a question right here. Yes, you would. Just go to Vips for yeah, breakfast. I'm Erwin Jacobs very recently was interviewed, he's 80 years old now, and he said that the two most important qualities of the human spirit are imagination and empathy. And the ability to dream, think about the future, make a positive contribution, 
but also to understand the frailties and the weaknesses of others. And that incredible sense of compassion that we are all in this together. And the, the toughest thing is that we have this brilliant voice here who's now given up so many years of his life to call the Padres after giving up so many years of his life to call all the other games, but now he's doing it here at home. But in the world of media, which is, is driven by the financial model, because that, that, that's the ultimate challenge, this, this tormented conflict that we face all the time. Because we'd all like to do everything for free and help everybody and give all the money away and everything. And I learned years ago from Jerry Garcia, in the Grateful Dead, because here was these incredible band of hippies who were just chasing their dream and living their lives, and, and the fans were just fantastic, and, and they would always yell at Jerry, say, come on, Jerry, the ticket prices are too high, we can't pay $7 for these tickets, and, you know, <laughs> play for free, Jerry, play for free, and Jerry would say, we would love to play for free, but life is not free for us. And so that sense of the balance that you have to have in, in, in making the business go and ma making the directions and as, as the social issues and problems that we have in this world as, as we fight all the time, you know, never forget how important it is that you are never going to have a successful team unless the people who are out there in the streets who are fighting and doing the job each and every day are proud satisfied with their choices in life, and if they are loyal to the cause. And that loyalty, that pride, and that satisfaction comes from the actions of the leader. And when we turn on the television today, we're just bombarded with negative messages and how tough it is to survive in a, in, in a world that what we want to be positive when they just keep forcing you into the world of excessive consumption, waste, incredible sexism, all about me, the individual. And that's why I love Dick Enberg so much. That's why I like Pete, Pete Seeger so much, Pete who just died. And Pete, one of the things that he used to say all the time was, the key to a successful future is to find the positive and optimistic stories in the world and spread them around on a constant basis. And that's what we try to do. We shine the light. And just think of Neil Young's most recent album, Psychedelic Pill, uh, of which I recommend a daily consumption of the music. And so one of the songs there is called Light a Candle. And the song goes something like this. Instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle for where we're going. There's something ahead worth looking for. Another song on that. Walked like a giant. And the song talks about being the guy, being that person who's right out there in front and leading the charge. And Neil's, the, and the refrain is, I want to walk like a giant on the land. I don't want to float like a leaf in the stream. And that's why I'm proud here to. Now, what was your question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, we're going to close it. We're going to close it right here. May I? Uh, my answer to that was, and it's one of the themes of the conference: connection. Connect with your people. Everyone has a story. Everyone wants to tell you about themselves. Let them do that. 
I worked for the networks for 35 years, and in the 35 years, I may have gotten three calls in 35 years where my boss back in New York picked up the phone and said, Enberg, I just want to tell you, you're doing a great job for us. We're so happy to have you. I mean, I, I longed for that kind of support. And, and, uh, and I've, I've told that to many of my friends, and one of those is now the executive producer of the Tennis Channel, was here for the Davis Cup, and he said, one of the things I learned from you, Dick, is I call all my employees, my announcers, my producers, my directors, at least once a month, just pick them up. He said, I, I reserve uh, my half a day a morning, and I just tell them, I, we're lucky to have you. You're doing such a great job, and keep up the good work. I mean, that'll, that'll, that'll take you miles and miles and miles. Connect with them, and the empathy, of course, is part of that whole process. Hey, uh, as we said, power of kindness. How about together? Thank, Thank you, you and oh my. Can, can, I just, can I just say one last thing? Can I say one last thing? Yes, of course, of course. Don't say anything about me or I'm leaving. <laughs> I want to take you through what it was like at the very end with John Wooden, who was the single most important, influential, and inspirational person in my life outside of my mom and dad. And Coach Wooden, when, when I played for him, I was 17, 18, 19 years of age. And so here I was, this young, rambunctious guy. And, and, and now, when I played for him, we had 12 guys on the team every year, and there was two guys on the team that I didn't like. I didn't like their game, I didn't like their personality. Other than that, everything was fine. And their names were Gary Franklin and Tommy Curtis. And so when Coach Wooden checked into the hospital at UCLA for the very last time, he checked in under the name of Gary Curtis. <laughs> but I found him. And I walk in there, and he's lying on the bed, and he's already dead. He's not even moving. And he's got his arms folded, he's just skin and bones, and there's nothing left. His chest is not going up and down. And so I figure he's already dead. So I walk over there, and I bend down, and I kiss him. And I say, Coach, thank you. I love you. And I'm really sorry for ruining your life. And he kind of shudders. Who's that? Who's there? I said, Coach, it's Bill Walton. And he sits up in bed and he says, I thought I was through with you. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be through with me in a minute. <laughs> but when Coach Wooden, when he was 99, some group, some organization gave him just what he needed, another award. They named him the greatest coach ever. Not the greatest basketball coach, not the greatest college coach, not the greatest English teacher who happened to write his master's thesis on how to teach poetry. No, they named him the greatest coach ever. Number two was Vince Lombardi, number three was Bear Bryant, number four was Phil Jackson, who was mad as can be about being number four. <laughs> number five was Don Shula, and number six was Red Auerbach. And when Red found out from inside his coffin that he was behind Phil Jackson, he is banging on that door. Let me out of here! Phil Jackson, that guy just buys players. I build teams. But Coach Wooden, he wanted no part of this. That wasn't his deal. He wasn't into the honoring. He wasn't into this hype. He, he was a person who just gave to make other people better. That was his deal. Under relentless pressure, he finally agreed to do it, but on his terms. Because he said, I'll do this, I'll accept this, but I'm in charge of the guest list. So the only people who could come were his family, his friends and his players. 
So it's a very small, intimate gathering, and they, after dinner, they wheel him up on the stage. In his wheelchair, 99, they hand him the microphone. Now, when you're 99, you've used your best material, especially when you're talking to your family, friends, and players. And so he starts rambling on about, there's no way I deserve this. How can you tell? What are the metrics for measuring? It's just, it's, a, it's an inaccurate award. And, uh, and then he goes, but I will accept and acknowledge that I'm among the best. Well, that's really big of you, coach. Way to go. <laughs> and then he turned it. And he said, I, I want to make an apology. I was wrong. And we're like, yeah, 99 years. He's finally going to admit he was wrong on some of this stuff, right? He said, no, nah, I, I made a mistake with the pyramid of success. Because even though I spent 14 years working on it, I left the word love out of the pyramid of success. And love is the single most powerful and important word in our language and culture. And until the power of love supersedes the love of power, we have no chance of making it to the top. Love and only love will get you through. And then he closed it as I will myself. When he said, as he looked around the room, and he knew everybody personally, made eye contact with everybody, and he said, I want to say I'm sorry. I want to say I'm sorry to each and every one of you in that I haven't been able to do more to help you. And that was the last thing that he ever said publicly. And so when I was lying on that floor for all those years and thinking, how am I ever going to get back up? What am I going to do with my life if I ever get the chance to do get back up? And I've learned a lot of incredible lessons. When you think you're going to die, when you want to die, and then you're in the worst state of all when you're afraid you're going to live and this is what you're stuck with. And then you do actually make it back and you have that chance to, to come and make a difference. What, what are you going to do? And uh, I've learned incredible lessons over th these last few years. And if anybody would have ever associated my name, Bill Walton, with things like perspective, relativity, tolerance, and patience, you'd have to seriously question that person's sanity. And so while I was lying there and all my friends kept coming and saying, don't give up, Bill, you can make it. Don't give up, you can make it. What kept going on? What, what was the, the driving force that, that did keep me alive in the game of life. And it was, it was all those different messages that my heroes, my friends, my family would, would, would give me on a constant basis. Things like, they're getting, wrap, hungry. they're getting hungry. They're getting hungry. I'm wrapping it up right okay. here. Things like Martin Luther King. We may have all come here in different boats, but we're all in the same boat now. Jerry Garcia, does it really matter anyway? Bob Dylan, those who are not busy being born are busy dying. Neil Young, what if you knew her and saw her there on the ground? How can you run when you know? Bob Dylan, in between making his commercials for Chrysler on the Super Bowl and singing those songs, he would always say, make each day your masterpiece. Dick referenced it earlier, the challenge is there for us. Does it really matter to you guys? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to stand up and say, I'll take care of this? Thank you so much, folks. Enjoy the night. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and hope that this was a good example of the kind of subject matter we go through each year at our conferences. Registration for our upcoming 2019 Servant Leader Conference is open and super early bird rates are available till the end of September. The theme this year is, are you able? It's a simple question that holds a lot of weight. Visit our website at www.servantleadershipinstitute.com to get all the details about how to register. Thank you once again for allowing us to add value to your day.